Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's feast time. That's right. Thanksgiving season here once again in, uh, in the United States at any rate. So we're continuing a tradition, a tradition of dangerous foods in which we highlight foods that at least can be dangerous or deadly under the right conditions. I mean, we're, we're trying not to alarm anyone, uh, but we find that there's, there's a lot of, lot of fun to be had in exploring the dangerous side of our culinary creations and our culinary instincts. Right. Now, this can range from such a strange, exotic uh, uh, chemical adventures in the past as the hallucinogenic sea bream of the mm-hmm. Mediterranean or uh, or like toxic honey that was chronicled in the ancient world as uh, leading to uh, victories in battle when when one side ate the honey and the other could take advantage of that. Uh, but it, it also goes into the mundane world where, where just like normal food items that we all take for granted, if not prepared the right way, could go very bad for you. For example, normal dried beans, kidney beans and so forth, you need to boil those. You don't just soak them and eat them. And if you do, you can experience some some extreme gastrointestinal problems. Yeah, a lot of it comes down to, okay, here's a thing that human beings can eat. But under what circumstances can humans eat it? What do they have to do to it first? Do they have to remove certain parts of it? Are only certain parts edible? Is it only – and then are those parts only edible after the, uh, the content has been cooked a certain way? Uh, likewise, is there a certain time during which a particular vegetable uh, item should be uh, harvested? And is it dangerous to harvest it or, and or consume it at another time? Or do leave it sitting around too long? As the, uh, we talked about uh, cases with potato poisonings in the past where potatoes were just – Left in the sack for a little, got a little too wizened, and yeah. then uh, the, they made some schoolboys sick in England. I yeah, believe. they get that unhealthy green color, right? Yeah. But of course, uh, humans don't just eat this vegetable or that invertebrate. We, we also combine all of these things. We add a small dosage of various spices, for instance, spices which in their natural form are chemical weapons and might prove very uncomfortable or dangerous to consume, uh, you know, especially if you're consuming them at a, at a quantity beyond uh, that, wh- uh, that which is um, advisable uh, when, when cooking. And the, the culinary palate becomes quite vast this way. And out of this complexity, many of the most magical of culinary possibilities emerge. Yeah. I was just – your note here made me think about the fact that, uh, of course, I love spicy food. I think you like spicy food too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that's so many of these uh, compounds that we so desire in our foods to liven them up are, of course, defenses. They're, as you say, you know, they're chemical weapons. The, what makes the garlic so hot and wonderful? It, it's got these compounds that come together when its cell walls are ruptured and produce this pungent odor and, and flavor that we love. Uh, but th- this mention of spice was also making me wonder a question I don't think we've ever addressed on the show before. Maybe you got into it many years ago, which is can you be killed by hot peppers? You know, I'm not sure. We may have covered a little bit of that in the past. I know we did an episode on nutmeg once. It was really interesting. That got into a little bit of, you know, the question of what is a lethal dose of nutmeg? What happens when you consume too much nutmeg? Um, and, and one of the things that was 
really emerged in that research was that, yeah, most spices, most household spices, if you consume too much of it, uh, you will hurt yourself. You right. Um, that's, just, that's just kind of a, a fact no matter what you're grabbing out of the spice cabinet. But with a lot of these things, you would have to consume an amount of it that is not a reasonable amount that would ever be used in cooking. Right. It would be – the food would become inedible. Like you would have to really force yourself to choke it down. It would have to be a very deliberate act. Uh, yeah, and I think this actually turns out to be the case with this question about hot peppers. As a lover of spicy food and as somebody who has taken a bite out of a raw Carolina reaper pepper for an on-camera experiment, which, uh, <laughs> I mean, that was a horrible experience. Is, is that what you're calling a YouTube challenge? Is no, it wasn't okay. a YouTube challenge. Okay. It was just it was just Rachel videoing me with her phone okay. while her dad showed up at the house with a, one of these. It was one of the spiciest peppers in the world. Oh, okay, I wasn't sure if you did like, something here. Uh, no, like no, 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 no. Okay. It, was, it was in Tennessee. Uh, it was like, you know, so one of these uh, like 10 billion Scoville units peppers, uh, he showed up and he was like, he knows I like spicy food. He's like, you want to try it? So I took a bite of it on camera. And yeah, that was uh, like, I love spicy food, but that became a problem. It was just more like I had a disease for the rest <laughs> of the day. Uh, and I tried to fix it as, you, you know, one thing you can do if you've eaten too much spicy food is you can try to neutralize it with some milk in your mouth. But then I ended up drinking some spoiled milk. So that made it even worse. <laughs> This sounds like a comedy bit. The comedy was all in my body. Uh, but yeah, so I was wondering, well, okay, so that felt pretty bad, even though I love really spicy food. Is it possible to eat food so spicy it kills you? Technically, yes, but under practical circumstances, not really. Uh, the active compound in chili peppers that makes them spicy is called capsaicin. Eating large amounts of capsaicin can cause, of course, you know, all the symptoms we're familiar with, gastrointestinal distress, even vomiting, sweating, flushing, irritation in the mucous membranes and all that, which – those symptoms themselves could potentially harm someone maybe if they're, say, in a very sensitive cardiopulmonary state. Mm -hmm. But as for just like somebody in normal health being poisoned by too much peppers, uh, I did find some cases where people had aspirated peppers and, and that was dangerous. But normally you're not like breathing in peppers uh, uh, when you're eating them, you're just swallowing them. So I found one article by someone named Catherine Gammon who consulted no less an authority than Paul Bosland, a professor of horticulture at New Mexico State University and director of the Chili Pepper Institute. They've got this whole chili pepper lab there where they like breed new strains of, of chilies. Um, and Bosland cites a study from 1980 on the acute toxicity of capsaicin. So how much does it take to just kill you? By his estimation, the research revealed that to kill a 150-pound person with capsaicin, you need to serve them about three pounds <laughs> of the powder form of one of the spiciest peppers known to humankind, such as the boot jalokia or the ghost pepper. Uh, and this would need to be all in one sitting. So you get them to eat three pounds of the powdered form all at once. Uh, and he notes that your body just probably would not allow this. Some things would happen to stop you on the on the course of this suicide mission. Yeah, that yeah, you, it would have to be an act of of madness uh, yeah, to yeah. really eat that much uh, much of the pepper. Yeah. So unless you're already in very delicate health or you're doing something very unusual and extreme, eating spicy food, even really really spicy food, is perfectly safe. But hey, that's all that's all the organic world. Well, I mean, I guess it's actually not because we're breeding these peppers hotter mm -hmm. and hotter. That is sort of agricultural technology. But still, you know, this is coming from a plant, right? Right. 
Yeah. So we, we get into this situation where we're, we're taking these plants, we're taking spices, we're taking other things, a vast palette of things from our natural world and then using them to create food. And it's one thing if we're creating that food within the household or within, say, a close, tight-knit community uh, such as you know, it would have been more or less the, you know, the archaic uh, normal uh, for, for humans. But of course, we ascend past that, right? We, we begin developing much larger groups and we begin uh, specializing the creation of various things, uh, various food products, especially various technologies, and we end up engaging in trade uh, and, and, and the stockpiling of foods as well. So given this, you know, there's this increased complexity allows us to work kind of a dark magic here as well. Not only can we enhance the flavor of our ingredients, but we can also hide offending smells, Mm -hmm. not merely in a, you know, in a household sense like, well, this fish is a little off, but we need to eat it. More in the, this fish is bad, but I really need to sell it way. Right. right. Uh, but you, there are all kinds of tricks like that. I mean, another thing you could do if you've seen one of those crime movies where somebody's like, they cut the dope, yeah. you know, putting baby powder in the brick of heroin or whatever. People do that with food products, too. Yeah. And we'll get into some some wonderful, wonderful examples of that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Basically, it, it opens the door for all manner of cuts and shortcuts and, and cheats, all predicated on the fact that in an industry of food, the maker doesn't have to consume their own food product. <laughs> right. And perhaps they'll be down the road by the time somebody does. Uh-huh. Now, so we are going to be talking about food adulteration and food additives today. But I don't want to contribute – as we always do in these episodes, mm-hmm. we don't want to contribute to food panic. And I don't want to contribute to additive panic. I think there are some people who who have this attitude like I don't allow any chemicals in my food or something, mm-hmm. uh, which I think we've discussed that attitude on the show before. It, it doesn't really make sense. I mean your food already has chemicals in it. It's right. made of chemicals. Uh, just looking at a, a something with a synthetic sounding name doesn't necessarily mean it's going to hurt you. Right, and and we'll, we'll touch a little bit, very, very briefly on sort of the the, the current state of additives in the in the future of additives, and and just the level of like legitimate concern and sometimes panic that that comes uh, uh, with discussion of these things. But for the most part, in this episode, we're going to be talking about older additives, additives that we can safely say were a bad idea. Yeah, uh, that it's not a matter a matter of opinion, uh, you know, regarding whether you should put this uh, particular ingredient in, say. A candy or not. Um, yeah, we're, and we're largely talking about the deliberate uh, adulteration of food. And this has actually been with us since ancient times. Uh, there are ancient laws uh, and, and rules that, 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 are, that govern how we handle our food, how we prepare our food in order to ensure food quality. Mm-hmm. This almost seems to me like it would be one of the earliest concerns of, of civilization. You know, like once you're no longer making your own food or having your own food made by a family member. Suddenly your food is being made by somebody maybe that you don't even know. You don't even know their name. It's being made in some place you can't see. You would naturally, I think, have people start to worry and wonder, like, what's in my food? Yeah, yeah. So I was looking at a source on this from one Marsha A. Eccles, uh, who wrote Food Safety, the Interplay of Culture and Science, uh, of Culture, Science, and Technology. And uh, uh, the author points out a number of, uh, of, of cool facts about 
sort of the ancient history of, of uh, food safety. So the Assyrians established weights and measures for grains uh, because – and we're getting – that's one of the, the – I guess one key way that you can – you can cheat a system of weights uh, and, and prices based on weights is to put something in with your grain to weight it down. Mm-hmm. Um, as early as 200 BCE, in, uh, uh, residents of India punished economic adulteration of grains and oils. During the same era, the Chinese combated consumer fraud. The ancient uh, Athenians had purity standards for both beer and wine. The Romans had a system to control fraud and bad produce, and there are various other ancient laws, religious or otherwise, uh, that governed the handling of meat in ways that were concerned ultimately with with purity, which, of course, is a, as we've discussed many times on the show, is, is a tricky concept because in purity, you're getting ideas of sort of hygiene mixed up with uh, with with less um, you know, matter of fact statements about a food. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, as we discussed with pork recently on the show, there, there's always this argument that the, the Purity is at least partially grounded in health concerns. Sure. Uh, and you could maybe make arguments like that about the, the mixing of different types of foods that are forbidden in, mm-hmm. in some religious customs. Maybe not that it, there's actually anything wrong with mixing those types of foods, but perhaps there was a perception in the ancient world that, that it could be dangerous. Yeah. Now, another source that I was looking at here is, uh, is, is a wonderful uh, write-up by Adam Burroughs, J.D., uh, and it's titled – Palette of our palates. Oh, clever. Oh, oh. A brief history of food coloring and its regulation from comprehensive reviews in, si- in food science and food safety. And this is from 2009. Uh, um, Burroughs points out that the ancient Egyptians wrote of drug colorants, but archaeologists think food coloration itself dates back to roughly uh, 1500 BCE. Uh, saffron, for mm. example, is mentioned in the Iliad, and Pliny the Elder wrote of colored wines in 400 BCE. And uh, I looked into this a little more, and it seems like he's possibly talking about the use of squid ink uh, in the wine to, I guess, you know, give, darken it and make, give it this uh, thicker uh, appearance. Squid ink is still used as a uh, food additive today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, like if you ever have squid ink pasta. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The beautiful, like, charcoal black color in the food. Um, I don't know if it really contributes a flavor. I've never looked into that. Yeah, I, I, and likewise, I don't know if putting squid ink in your wine is I'm, – I'm sure it's it would be frowned upon at a <laughs> right. fine restaurant today. Uh, but saffron, of course, contributes both color and flavor. It's got mm-hmm. a distinctive kind of aroma. But, yeah, you put a little bit of saffron in, say, a, a pot of rice and it takes on this beautiful golden hue. Yeah, in addition to saffron, um, a few other uh, spices and elements that have long been used to color food. Paprika, uh, fabulous. Turmeric, beet uh, extract is a big one because, you know, you get that bright red coloration. Uh, Long-used food dyes, all of these. Uh, But one that was particularly popular in the past, Tyrian purple was derived from several species of predatory predatory sea snails. Oh, yeah. And if you want to learn more about the way that um, uh, the the Roman Empire in particular made use of uh, naturally occurring substances, uh, check out our previous episode on Roman extinctions. Oh, yeah. There we talk about the the cultivation of like silphium and Mm -hmm. things like that. Now, another source that we looked to here was Deborah Bloom's book, The Poison Squad. And Bloom points out that as the Industrial Revolution washed over the world of foods during, uh, you know, particularly during, I think, the 1870s, uh, she's pointing out here, uh, new food processing approaches provided even more new ways and new ingredients to commit just lavish food fraud. Yeah. Uh, And this included artificial flavors, artificial coloring, and chemical preservatives. 
And in this book, she, she makes a, a case for the importance of USDA chemist Harvey Washington Wiley uh, in his white hat efforts to use our advancing knowledge of chemical science to stay atop of these many frauds. Uh, this all in advance of the Meat Inspection Act and the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, which Wiley helped to bring to fruition. Yeah, he's sort of the central character in this book. And uh, it's funny that I feel like some of the main chemicals and preservatives that he investigated with his famous poison squad, which was a a group of men who would um, who would essentially meet to eat meals together that were contaminated deliberately with certain uh, common additives used in food to see how their health fared uh, from repeatedly eating things like uh, borax or boric acid or whatever it was, <laughs> that was, that kind of thing that was used to produce stuff. I feel like some of the uh, things that the Poison Squad investigated, the jury's still kind of out on exactly how harmful they were. Maybe they weren't as harmful as he thought they were. But the, clearly at this time, some food additives were harming and killing people. I think especially there was some danger from certain dyes. Yes. Oh, and by the way, the Poison Squad, it sounds like it would make a wonderful uh, television series, you know? Uh-huh. I mean, the public loves a good police procedural. Right. This is kind of like a little bit of police procedural, also a little bit, you know, the, the flavoring of, say, the Nick, except with, uh-huh. uh, with a food um, focus. So I really hope it's been optioned. One thing audiences love is people in the past not knowing things that we know <laughs> now. It's like the, the scene in Mad Men where the kid is playing, putting the uh, the dry cleaning bag over their head and mm-hmm. the, like the scenes in The Nick where people are just like sitting in front of an x-ray machine. Why does that give us such pleasure to see the people of the past punished by their ignorance? I don't know. You know uh, one thing I will say, I think that The Nick did a great job with it because they were able – they had those moments for sure. But at the same time, they had plenty of moments where they, I think, were able to effectively convey this sense of modernity in in the show, that, you know, mm-hmm. showing you that that even if we can look back in hindsight on these various techniques in in the show, in the time frame, they're occurring at the just the bleeding edge yeah. of our understanding of the human body, and uh, it's like retro science fiction. Yeah, uh, so it, obviously, I guess it's you know it's a, it's a it's a delicate balance to maintain in a show. But like, I would I would love to see the same people who did the Nick like do the Poison Squad. At least for one season, maybe, maybe limited series, maybe, but yeah. uh, but still. So the, the frauds during this time were many, uh, but I think one of the more terrifying examples uh, to discuss, just to kick things off here, is uh, is something that just on the face of things will seem like a terrible, if, if not nefarious, idea, and that is lead-colored candy. Mm-hmm. So in our past episode on lead, um, I believe it was uh, uh, Cupid's Lead and Arrow. It was a Valentine's Day special. Right. We pointed out that even though lead is quite poisonous, uh, it tastes uh, – its taste is also sometimes described as sweet. Right. And the ancient Romans used lead salt as a sweetener in their syrup. Uh, this was known as sapa, I believe. And uh, Pliny the Elder, once again, uh, describes the use of leaden vessels with sapa to sweeten the taste. Right. Yeah. You've got to boil down your sapa, which was like – it was a syrup made by reducing some kind of wine product, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you boil it down to make it sweet and it takes on the lead from the pot that it's boiled in to become sweeter. He says, don't boil it in a copper pot. That's going to taste bitter. You've (laughs) got to boil it in a lead pot so it tastes nice and sweet. So when it comes to candy, obviously candy is generally sweetened through a, a much more conventional means, namely sugar mm-hmm. or, or some sugar substitute. But during the time of Wiley's wars against dangerous foods, children's candy was routinely laced with lead and other heavy metals to color it. Yeah. 
to impart this kind of uh, you know, uh, this, uh, often described as kind of an orange coloration, mm-hmm. which um, is just you know terrifying to imagine. Yeah, you because know, I'm just imagining like one of these red suckers that you, you get at the supermarket nowadays, and just imagining that being laced with lead and being handed to a child. Right now, as the CDC points out, lead was and in some parts of the world still is added to foods, uh, not only to impart an inviting orange color, but also indeed to sweeten it or to increase its weight. Oh no. Again, getting back to the idea that oftentimes food, especially in bulk, is priced based on weight. The you cut the dope of candy, but it's with lead. Yeah. So, so that's like three different levels of poisonous deception that are possibly in play in any given piece of lead-laced candy. Make it cost more via weight, make it look more attractive via color, and artificially enhance the flavor to some extent as well. Uh, and this applies not just to, to candy but to other foodstuffs uh, with lead often introduced uh, via a spice blend. Now, of course, there are other ways that lead uh, can get into candy as well uh, and still can get into candy. Uh, there, was a, there was a 1996 case I was looking at in which a six-year-old boy uh, was allegedly poisoned by lead-containing uh, tamarindo candy jam products purchased on a visit to Mexico with his aunt. Uh, however, it seems like a case in which the lead contamination was linked to the fact uh, that it was, quote, candy packaged in ceramic jars from Mexico at the time. And uh, as the California Department of Health points out, it is, quote, not entirely clear where the lead in many of the products is coming from, but products containing tamarind, chili powder, or salt that is mined from certain parts of the world may have a higher likelihood of elevated levels of lead. Lead may also be introduced into the candy through improper drying, storing, or grinding of the ingredients. Now, as we know from our, our, our old alchemist friend Paracelsus, it is, of course, the dose that makes the poison. Mm-hmm. And this applies in multiple ways. It, it can apply to uh, some things can be can accumulate in the body and their effects over time with chronic exposure. Sometimes it also just has to do with an acute dose. It's possible that, you know, lead compounds have been used in many food products over time that if they're in small enough concentration, there's not much of a noticeable effect on the people who, who eat them. But I bet in many of these cases, the, the concentration of lead in the products is probably not very tightly controlled, especially in the past, in the 19th century and stuff. So you might get suddenly a gumball or candy that's got a lot more lead than usual, leading to you know high levels in an acute sense. But also eating this candy over time could lead to effects that people don't even necessarily associate with the candy. Right, yeah. And then another factor that was brought up in the, the, the case study of the child is that obviously like children are going to be more susceptible mm-hmm. Uh, individuals with smaller body weight, uh, etc., which, of course, is is all the more troubling because we are talking about candy, uh, which is inherently for children. All right, time to take a break, but we will be right back with more. All right, we're back. Should we talk about some more weird color additives? Okay. All right, so uh, so, so these are some more examples that come from um, Adam Burroughs J.D.'s Palette of Our Palettes. Uh, some of these are – a number of these are not nefarious, but I'm just going to touch on them anyway because it gives, a, like a, a, I think, a broader understanding of how and why we color our food and what we use to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, cochineal insects have long been used to make the dye carmine, uh, traditionally used in fabrics. It also pops up in cosmetics and food coloring. Uh, again, not deadly uh, unless you're one of the insects that gets ground up to uh, impart a, a reddish coloration, but it's still interesting. 
Saffron we already touched on. Uh, also not deadly, though, of course, with any spice, you'll run into adverse reactions if you consume too much of it. A little saffron tends to go a long, long way. It's mm-hmm. derived from the saffron crocus flower, and it's long been used in cooking both for its flavor and for its strong yellow coloration. Now, we mentioned earlier, like, cutting the dope, adding something that's <laughs> right. not the dope to the dope that, you know, bulks it up and makes it more attractive initially. Uh-huh. And this leads us to a, a famous quote uh, from a giant, I'll grind your bones to make my bread. Oh, yeah. That's from, uh, what, Jack and the Beanstalk? Yeah. Yeah, so he climbs up there and, and the giant I, – I don't get it. Why is he grinding his bones? I, yeah, it always troubled me as a kid because I'm like, I, I don't know no, much about bread making. I'm not mm-hmm. a baker, but I know you don't make bread out of bones that are ground up. It makes a little more sense, though, when you uh, understand that a typical medieval baker's trick – uh, was to brighten up bread by using ground bone, lime, or chalk. Whoa. In fact, uh, King Edward I outlawed this practice. And, uh, and here's, a, here's a reading of the law. If any default shall be found in the bread of a baker in the city, the first time let him be drawn upon a hurdle from the guild hall to his own house through the great street where there be most people assembled and through the streets which are most dirty with the faulty loaf hanging from his neck. If a second time he shall be found committing the same offense, let him be drawn from the guild hall through the great street of Cheapy to the pillory and let him be put upon the pillory and remain there at least one hour in the day. And the third time that such default shall be found, be shall be drawn, and the oven shall be pulled down, and the baker made to forswear the trade in the city forever. Whoa. The shame walk with bread around your neck. Yeah. That's what you get if you put bone or something else in the bread. Victorian-era Europe uh, saw uh, copper salts used to turn pickles and vegetables a, a brighter green color, apparently. And as described in 1820 by English chemist Frederick Ackham, uh, a key individual in the crackdown on illicit additive, additives at the time, uh, he said the following. This quote uh, comes from Burroughs' uh, Right up as well. Quote, vegetable substances preserved in a state called pickles wholesale frequently depends greatly upon a fine, lively green color and sometimes intentionally colored by means of copper. A young lady amused herself by eating pickles impregnated with copper. She soon complained of a pain in her stomach. In nine days after eating the pickle, death relieved her of her suffering. Whoa. And Ackham also pointed to the use of these coloring additives in candies, uh, in, in which he pointed out uh, vermilion uh, would contain mercury, uh, red lead was another one, white lead, verdigris, which is a copper salt, uh, blue vitriol, which contains copper, and then shields green, which contains copper and arsenic. Shields Green is a massive uh, historical case of, I think, primarily not used in food, right? Primarily used in like... Uh, I don't know, co- coloring walls and stuff like yeah, that. But I think you see that with a few of these different things. Like there'll be a dye and it's fine if you're dyeing fabrics with it. Uh-huh. But then to turn around and use it in food is either, you know, it is at least ill-advised uh, if not like a nefarious act. Oh, I'm not saying Shields Green is fine. I think Shields Green is famous for poisoning oh, yes. people in history. Oh, th- yeah. Like even through fabric. It was one of the real bad ones. Ah, okay. In addition, uh, iron compounds were sometimes used to redden up foods. And then the dye Prussian blue along with yellow gypsum were often added to Chinese green teas to make them more green and inviting to foreign markets. Uh, and, and Prussian blue contained arsenic. This reminds me of the uh, 
the situation with absinthe. Um, when you when you see uh, like a selection of absinths uh, mm-hmm. at a uh, you know absinthe bar, uh, generally speaking, uh, if I remember correctly, you're going to want to go for the ones that do not look as much like storybook absinthe. Like the more it looks like mouthwash. Like it's a sign that some sort of um, coloration has been added. Probably not arsenic. I'm not saying uh-huh. it's arsenic, but uh, but something has been added to enhance that coloration and make it more attractive uh, to at least the casual audience. I see. Make it uh, uh, to use a Tolkienism, look fairer and taste fouler. Yes. <laughs> and then there's the coloring of butter and butter-like products. Burroughs points out that there was a 1396 French edict against coloring butter, and later a 1574 law preventing the use of colors in pastries to simulate the presence of eggs. And then there were the, then there were the margarine wars, which we've touched on on the show in the past, uh, in which butter manufacturers sought to protect their turf by seeking laws against yellow dyes in margarine. Hmm. And, and even uh, adding the requirement of pink dye to make it clear that margarine was not butter. And in fact, the U.S. Supreme Court had to intervene and overturn state laws in 32 pro-butter states, uh, according to The Butter Wars, by, uh, <laughs> published in Nat Geo, and this was by Rebecca Rupp. Now, again, while it is clear that some compounds used as dyes in history have turned out to be dangerous in one form or another, this is certainly not to suggest that all or even most of these compounds have any kind of negative health effects. But concerns about such have definitely continued into the modern era, era whether founded or not. Yeah, and, and if you want to learn more about this, sort of the modern state and recent history of, of, of dye considerations, dye outrage, dye panics, etc., uh, I'd refer you to Burroughs for more on this because he gets into a lot of the concerns over modern dyes and sometimes the urban legends about their dangers, such as the notion that Mountain Dew's yellow NR5 reduces sperm count, <laughs> which, uh, which is, is not the case. But that was like – that was an urban legend that was making the rounds at one point. Uh-huh. Uh, however, I will leave uh, you all with this quote from Burroughs on the history and future of color additives. I think he sums this up nicely. Quote, it is hard to believe that only a century ago our ancestors were eating food dyed with highly toxic color additives. From that auspicious starting point, we have come to a time where a food colorant with a 1 in 19 billion chance of causing cancer is legally considered too dangerous. What we use to dye our foods and how we regulate it may continue to change, but there is no end in sight to the timeless practice of coloring our food. This is interesting, like the idea that I don't know. Whenever you're making a ruling on this kind of thing, you can't you can't ever say that something is you're sure 100 percent safe. Mm-hmm. So, like, what's the threshold you're comfortable with? You're like, okay, if maybe if we use this dye in Fruit Loops for a hundred years, one person will be killed by it. <laughs> is that is that like? It, do we just decide? Okay, if it's just one person every hundred years getting killed by the dye, then it's okay. Yeah, and I wonder too, like, to what, like, what is our ultimate relationship with the idea of adding dye to a food product? Mm -hmm. Is it one of, I mean, if we're oblivious to it, it's just, oh, it's this is super red. I'm very attracted to it. I must have this candy or apple or whatever the product is. Well, we eat with the eyes first, totally. Yeah, Yeah. but but then if if there also seems to be this 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 broad category of just distrust associated Mm -hmm. with food coloration as well. Uh, this this idea that I mean, probably instilled you know pretty early on via some of these uh, frauds that were perpetrated the idea that if there's some sort of artificial color there there's something in the food that should not be there mm-hmm. uh, there the, the understanding that this 
food is super red in an unnatural way. Um, why is that the case? Something is trying to fool me with this food. It's the post-Watergate era of relationship with foods. I mean, you know, it's our, our just general uh, distrustful attitude in the modern world. I think, uh, you know, there there are reasons for us to feel that way even if we're not necessarily correct about perceived dangers in industrial additives to, to food products. And another thing I wanted to clarify, I know that when you say that, you know – when you're talking about a one in 19 billion chance of a die killing somebody, I, I understand that's talking about like confidence intervals. That doesn't mm -hmm. literally mean that like one person will die for every, you know, it's, it's right. just a way of expressing how confident you are generally that something is safe. And again, I, I recommend everyone to, to check out that Burroughs article if you want more, uh, you know, in-depth uh, consideration of dyes. Uh, but I think that's that's probably enough for, for food additives, uh, for dyes at this point. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to open up some beer. All right, we're back. Now, I want to start with uh, – we, we've done these in some of the uh, the dangerous food episodes in the past to, to do a little sort of epidemiological detective story where there's a sudden outbreak of symptoms and then people are trying to figure out what caused it. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to go back to the 1960s, to the mid to late 1960s. And in this period, doctors in hospitals and clinics across a number of metro areas in Europe and in the United States and Canada began to notice a strange pattern of cases – Patients showing up with a sudden onset of an unusual form of cardiomyopathy, which is a disease of the heart muscle in which parts of the heart can become enlarged or stiff or just generally aren't working properly. Uh, so between August 1965 and April 1966, a rash of cases appeared around the area of Quebec City in Canada, enough to signal that there was some kind of pattern going on to local clinicians and, and pathologists uh, who at first thought, well, maybe the epidemic is viral in nature, but a study of 30 patients could not isolate a viral cause for this strange kind of cardiomyopathy. Uh, and this was described in a 1967 report I'll, I'll cite in a minute. Instead, what the patients seemed to have in common was that they were all heavy beer drinkers. Mm. Um, so alcoholic beverages are an interesting case to explore when you're talking about you know, dangerous foods because alcoholic beverages already contain a perfectly powerful and dangerous active ingredient, which is alcohol. Uh, according to a tally by the U.S. CDC in 2015, about 2,200 people in the United States die every year from alcohol poisoning. And that's just alcohol poisoning, which is an acute overdose of alcohol leading directly to death. If you expand that number to alcohol-related deaths, such as, you know, deaths from, from chronic alcohol abuse or include stuff like, you know, traffic collisions caused by people driving under the influence, the number is obviously going to be a lot higher. Yeah, it, it, it among other things, it is a great insight into the the uneven way in which we uh, we we we, uh, we we govern the consumption and purchase of various uh, dangerous substances. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but for yeah, so for alcohol poisoning alone, twenty two hundred people every year as of twenty fifteen. That's an average of six people who die every single day in just in the United States, and an overwhelming majority of the people who die from alcohol poisoning are adult men. Seventy six percent of deaths uh, from alcohol poisoning occur among men, and seventy six percent are also between people of the ages thirty five to sixty four. And of course, the primary cause of death in these cases is suppression of the 
life-sustaining functions of the brain and the central nervous system. All right. So the basic scenario is you have a, a, a population of people who are already drinking something that is arguably poison, but something else may be involved. Right. These cases of cardiomyopathy did not seem to stem from the acute or chronic effects of alcohol itself. Uh, so to look at a study, the, the sort of breakthrough study on, on the first big look at this, it was by Yves Marin and Philippe Daniel called Quebec Beer Drinkers Cardiomyopathy, Etiological Considerations. That means considerations for the origin of this uh, outbreak. It was published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal in 1967. And the authors here mentioned that there was a similar outbreak of sudden cardiomyopathy in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, I was also looking at a 1972 paper by a doctor named Carl S. Alexander describing an outbreak of cardiomyopathy in 28 patients admitted to the VA hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota between 1964 and 1967. So again, mid, mid to late 60s, uh, especially in these Midwestern and Northern cities, sudden outbreak of, of strange type of heart disease. Uh, and again, what these cases seem to have in common was heavy consumption of beer and sudden unusual cardiomyopathy. So according to Alexander, a total of 42 patients with acute cardiac distress were admitted to the hospital in Minneapolis. But the study focused on just 28 of them because those 28 admitted to drinking up to 30 bottles of not just beer, but one particular brand mm. of beer, uh, brand X in Alexander's paper, and denied drinking any other alcoholic beverages. The other 14 patients were excluded from the initial study because they drank other kinds of alcohol uh, as well as Brand X beer, actually. Now, Brand X is just to cover the, the name of the actual manufacturer, right? Right. Okay. Uh, th that's just in the literature. I, I will name one of the, the culprits that we get to later okay. on. Uh, but yeah. Alexander's paper was published in 72 in the American Journal of Medicine. And again, this is looking at uh, a broader uh, study of, of this phenomenon here. Now, Alexander mentions that there are types of cardiomyopathy that you would otherwise expect to find among patients with alcoholism. And these cases uh, were different in their symptoms and onset. Like Alexander says, quote, the syndrome differed from alcoholic cardiomyopathy and beriberi, which again, uh, that's another related disease caused by a deficiency of vitamin B1, also known as thiamine. And uh, Alexander says the way it differed from these other known conditions was, quote, in its rather abrupt onset of left ventricular failure, cardiogenic shock and acidosis. So cardiogenic shock is when the heart suddenly fails to pump enough blood to provide circulation to the rest of the body, often happens as the result of a heart attack. Acidosis is an imbalance in the pH of the blood in which the blood plasma becomes overly acidic. Alexander also mentions two other unique features of these apparent epidemics as identified uh, in Belgium by a doctor named Kesselut. Uh, and these were pericardial effusion. And this is when there's an excess of fluid surrounding the heart inside the pericardium, which is a kind of sac that surrounds the heart muscle. So you've got the heart is inside its sac and then there's a bunch of fluid in that sac. And then there is uh, – there were also elevated hemoglobin levels. Hemoglobin is the protein in red blood cells that the body uses to transport oxygen molecules from the lungs to the rest of the body. Uh, and you might see elevated levels of hemoglobin in any kind of uh, condition where the body is struggling to supply itself with enough oxygen. So this could range from high altitude, say, right, because, uh, you know, you're not getting enough with each breath. So mm -hmm. you see increased hemoglobin in the blood to various lung and heart disease. 
diseases. Alexander mentions that among the patients he reviewed, acute mortality was 18 percent, but the disease was associated with lingering symptoms and disabilities that led to a total mortality of 43 percent. So ultimately, 43 percent of the people he saw with this condition died from it. And so it took a bit of work to isolate the cause of these outbreaks, especially it was in the first one in Quebec City in the years 1965 to 1966. The investigating physicians established that it probably was not caused by a virus, that it seemed to be associated with heavy beer drinking, but that it didn't look like normal alcoholic cardiomyopathy. And they discovered something else similar to what uh, Alexander discovered later in his study about the Minneapolis patients. In Quebec City, it wasn't just that the patients were heavy beer drinkers. They drank a lot of one specific Mm -hmm. brand of beer. Uh, Morin and Daniel speaking of this brewery that made this beer, quote, Its excellent tasting brew was and still is very popular in Quebec and accounts for approximately 80 percent of the local market. Later reports revealed this to be the Dow Brewery. So, quick question: Does this have? Did this have any? Uh, did this inspire the movie Strange Brew? Is there any connection? I don't know. I haven't this? seen Strange oh, okay. Brew. I've never seen it either. I just. I'm, oh, okay. <laughs> I, well, I'm just familiar with it by you know reputation that it concerns uh, some sort of strange Canadian brew of beer and its you know cinematic powers. I kind of doubt it because I think that movie's a comedy and this ultimately is not that funny of a story. Yeah. Though it does have – I don't know. I guess it has some funny well, elements. Well, tragedy you think plus it, time sure. equals comedy, right? Yes. Uh, the, the, of course, what happened to the people who drank it is not funny. But like mm-hmm. when, you, when we find out what was causing this, it is actually – kind of strange. So uh, Morin and Daniel mentioned that they were inspired to look more closely at the constituents of the beer made by this brewery because of a specific historical analogy, and that's the Great English Beer Poisoning of 1900. Hmm. Uh, This was an incident in which thousands of people across Middle and Northwest England, especially in the city of Manchester, were poisoned by beer. Uh, Of the thousands who were poisoned, at least around 70 or so died. And I think it was originally believed to be nothing more than a bunch of, you know, known pathologies affecting alcoholics. A royal commission in Great Britain investigated the incident and discovered that the outbreak of symptoms was due to contamination of these batches of beer with the chemical element arsenic. Ah. A known poison. Now, given the isolation of this beer source uh, and a bit of historical analogy, finally a theory started to come together, and it starts with beer foam and dish detergent. Hmm. So, you ever seen a beer commercial on TV? The kind I know you've seen one at least. (laughs) Sometimes you know you're hanging out by the pool, partying with the bottles or the cans. Right. Sometimes you're a giant uh, uh amid the mountains. Uh, right. Throwing the ball back and forth, yeah. Which was the beer company that had the had the big like Transformers monster? Oh, I don't know. See, they all they all kind of run together for me, and I was never a uh, uh, you know a customer. Uh, but you know, sometimes you're partying with a dog. Uh-huh. Uh, it, just about anything can happen in a beer commercial. Okay, so I, I'm trying to get you to picture a specific kind, which is the one where. Uh, somebody is pouring a nice frosty glass of beer straight from the tap into a mug or a, or a pint glass and handing it across the bar to the earthy Marlboro man who's off work and ready to relax with his friends. You, you know this kind, right? With this, the bar, with the glass, with especially the frothy head at the top of the glass. Right, and the Marlboro man is going to uh, drink from it and he's going to have the foam stuck on his mustache. <sighs> yeah, yeah. 
Got foam. Yeah. And so in this genre of beer commercial, clearly one of the most important aesthetic qualities of that glass of beer is the foamy top. Some people call it the head. Some people call it the collar. This foam is caused by the quick rising of bubbles from previously dissolved gas. Usually it's going to be carbon dioxide, but I think some brands actually dissolve nitrogen in there to help with the foam. Guinness or some brands might do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But these bubbles form at nucleation points in the glass of beer as it's poured and they shoot up to the top of the glass where they collect in a mesh of bubbles and proteins from the malt in the beer and bitter hop compounds. Uh, I was looking at an article that interviewed a professor of biochemistry at Cornell named Carl Siebert on the subject of what constitutes beer foam. And Siebert mentioned that one of the important proteins in beer that collects in these bubbles uh, and this matrix of bubbles and proteins in beer foam is albumin, which I thought I would just add is also the same primary family of proteins that you find in egg whites. Hmm. So is there something shared in common between your loggerhead and that egg white omelet? A little bit. Or your uh, Ramos Gin Fizz, which of course is going to have that nice creamy, frothy consistency because of the egg whites uh, that are part of, uh, of the recipe. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. But, but in the beer, like the, the head of the beer, I, I know that you're not supposed to have too much of it, right? Like that's a sign of a bad pour. Right. Yeah. So it, I think it's widely agreed by beer drinkers that a glass of beer without a correctly proportioned layer of head is wrong. Mm. You, if you get too much head, if it takes up like half the glass or if you have none at all, you have failed to beer. But it's, I'm assuming you still need a certain amount of foam right. at the top for it just to feel like you're drinking beer. Right. And, and the beer industry has studied the chemistry of beer foam extensively to meet the perceived customer demand for the right kind of frothy head on a glass of beer. Uh, but the researchers Marin and Daniel note that by the mid-1960s, beer manufacturers were encountering a problem that beer wasn't looking right in a lot of bars. It didn't have that nice frothy head that they believed the customers were looking for. And this was believed to be the result of the use of synthetic dishwashing detergents used to clean beer glasses, Mm. which after cleaning and insufficient rinsing would leave a layer of film on the inside of the beer glass that interfered with the beer's ability to foam up and create a nice head. Interesting. I'd never thought about that. So around July 1965, some Canadian brewers and presumably brewers elsewhere found a solution in modern chemistry in an additive chemical compound that Marin and Daniel uh, originally identify as cobalt sulfate, but which later authors I think more correctly identified as cobalt chloride. Hmm. Uh, But the main thing here is that it's a cobalt compound. This cobalt compound was added to draft beer batches to stabilize the beer head and overcome any anti-foaming influence of detergent residue left in the beer glass. So obviously we know where this is heading, but and so it's probably coloring my judgment, but already it sounds like you, if you're fighting detergent film, uh-huh. through the, the food product itself, through the beer itself, like that's a bad sign. Right, right. right. Uh, and, and again, this would be something that they were only really supposed to be dealing with through draft beer, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to be poured into a glass in a bar or something. Uh, it wouldn't be the same in a bottle because it, it – you know, number one, the head doesn't really matter in the bottle as much. Right, and then presumably uh, that bottle is going to be – Completely clean and not have any kind of like you have control over what you're you're pre-cleaning the bottles with. Exactly. Yeah. But it turns out that at least in this Quebec City uh, brewery, this stuff was being added to both the draft beer and the bottled beer batches Hmm. because they didn't make them separately. They made them all in one batch and then split them up later. 
So, so they're putting cobalt in the beer. Wonder how that's going to turn out. L- let's talk about cobalt. Cobalt is a chemical element, atomic number 27. It's one of the transition metals of the periodic table. It's essentially never found in its pure form in nature. It's always bound up with other elements in compounds and compound minerals and other stuff. Uh, very cool etymology fact. The English name cobalt comes from the German word cobalt, ah. which in its general sense means goblin or imp or demon. More specifically, it refers to a breed of German household or subterranean goblin. Uh, the, there would be ones in your house, ones sometimes I think in ships and definitely in mines. Mm. And these goblins could be full of tricks and mischief if you offended them. So essentially a gremlin. Yes. Uh, so the cobalt ore was rarely sought out for its own sake at this time, but it was usually a byproduct of mining for other metals like silver or copper. And it seemed to some miners and and refiners and metal workers that this other element in the ore carried impish or demonic qualities since it was believed to make workers sick with its fumes and degrade the quality of silver. Uh, Now, I think it seems actually with historical perspective that what was really making people sick during this refining process was the arsenic content of the ore. Mm. But the goblin name stuck with cobalt. Cobalt remains the goblin metal. (laughs) Cobalt was first chemically isolated in the 1730s by the Swedish chemist Georg Brandt. But the use of compounds containing cobalt goes back into the ancient world. Going back to our dye discussion, it appears that it was often for the use of coloring. Uh, It was to pigment or color statuettes in ancient Egypt or beads in ancient Persia. And cobalt was used in uh, ceramics in China. But what happens when you start eating or drinking it? Well, cobalt appears to have a very complex range of biological effects. Uh, At the same time, of course, it is not a pure poison. In fact, cobalt compounds in small quantities are important for good health in a number of animals. Or I said compounds, plural. I think there's at least one known one I can think of, which is vitamin B12, also known as cobalamin. Uh, It contains cobalt and uh, and B12 is, of course, essential for good health. It sustains functions like cell metabolism, red blood cell formation, or uh, I think the maturation of red blood cells, and in DNA synthesis. And in In fact, there were already by the 1960s known therapeutic uses of cobalt. But uh, again, to revisit Paracelsus, it's the dose that makes the poison. While some small amounts of some forms of cobalt are necessary in the body, humans are also extremely sensitive to large doses of cobalt. So to come back to the Quebec City outbreak in 1965, according to uh, Morin and Daniel, the myocardial toxicity of cobalt was already known to medical science in the 1960s. Studies had already shown that metabolized cobalt is deposited in the muscle tissue of the heart, and it will reduce the ability of the heart muscles to contract, which of course they need to do to pump blood. So the detectives here looked into the timing of when cobalt was added to the beer and the appearance of patients with beer drinker's cardiomyopathy, and it was clear that the cobalt in the beer was primarily to blame. Uh, After a pattern was discovered in in 1966, breweries in the United States and Canada and elsewhere were ordered by their governments to stop using cobalt additives, and this appears to have stopped the, the, you know, people showing up at hospitals and clinics with this unique type of cardiomyopathy in the following months. 
uh, Robert, I've attached a little timeline for you here, but you can see quite clearly a pattern where basically the cobalt is introduced and then the patient starts showing up. The cobalt is removed and the patient stops showing up. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a clear correlation there. Now, there are some peculiarities here, and one is that in both the case of the 1900 beer poisoning in England and the outbreaks of beer drinkers' cardiomyopathy, it seemed like at least some patients, maybe a lot of patients, displayed symptoms that were more powerful than you would expect from the doses of arsenic and cobalt alone, respectively, that they received. So it also looks like the negative effects of alcoholism along with poor diet and nutrition may be contributing to making the arsenic and the cobalt more potent poisons than they would have been on their own. Nevertheless, I think it's totally clear that the cobalt was primarily the cause. Uh, and Morin and Daniel also add a really stern, pretty harsh addendum to their paper. Uh, they point out that the, uh, a chelating agent called EDTA, quote, has been shown to prevent cobalt intoxication in the animal. Had this metal been known to be present in beer at the time of the epidemic, the prompt administration of EDTA might have saved some of our patients. The clinician accustomed to knowing the exact composition of the drugs he uses will therefore seriously question the necessity for the secrecy that surrounds the use of food or drink additives. Mm, that makes sense. Again, it comes back to to, to the um, you know, the fact that in the modern world we have such a robust palate from which to create our various food products. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, if, if, if you're going to be treating uh, an illness that may be due to your particular food or drink product, uh, you need to have the, the, the secret ingredients fully listed so that medical personnel can respond appropriately. Yeah, and I mean it's known here that they're saying if we'd known about the cobalt earlier, some people who died might have lived. Mm. Uh, and that's a tragic reality. Um, this just seems to be this unfortunate side effect of the the idea of protecting recipes and industrial secrets and stuff. Uh, but anyway, after the link between uh, the cobalt additive and the cardiac disease was discovered, the use of cobalt, of course, was suspended, as we said. Uh, but there must have been plenty of cases around the world of undiagnosed cobalt cardiomyopathy, which doctors just mistook for more common forms of heart disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yves Moren emphasizes this point, speaking to the CBC in a 2014 article about the cobalt uh, poisoning, quote, you can't imagine the number of patients everywhere who died from that disease because it was 40 percent mortality. Mm. But the story doesn't end there. I was reading a 2014 article from the CBC. Uh, uh, that was the one I just cited. And, and the occasion of this article was that there was another case of cobalt poisoning that was recognized by a group of doctors in Germany that <laughs> year with the help of an episode of the TV show House, <laughs> which I've never seen before. But uh, apparently the doctor said the fact that cobalt poisoning had showed up on an episode of the TV show led them to, along with the, this historical case of the beer outbreak uh, in the 60s, led them to diagnose correctly what was happening to a 55-year-old man who showed up in a hospital in Marburg, Germany with severe heart failure, deafness, blindness, fever, hypothyroidism, and swollen lymph nodes. And the doctors eventually pinpointed the cause of his sudden illness, which was cobalt poisoning from metal hip implants. Huh. A common use of cobalt today is in, in is in special like alloys, like magnetic metals and alloys. Uh, and apparently th- this patient had, I think, part of some kind of ceramic object with part of it with his hip replacement rubbing against the metal alloy element mm-hmm. of the hip replacement. And it was the rubbing was releasing cobalt into his bloodstream. 
But the doctors figured this out. The patient had his hip prosthesis removed and replaced with a new model, after which the concentrations of cobalt and chromium in his blood decreased, and he recovered from some of the worst of his symptoms, but not immediately from all of them. Huh. Well, that's, that's, that's very interesting. And as far as House goes, I've, I've never watched either. I love the, the lead actor. But this is a, a great example of why it's, it's not a bad thing to get the, the science at least mostly right in some sort of uh, you know popular form of entertainment, I agree because people are going to uh, you know they're going to learn from it um, for better or worse you know and uh, here's an example of of, of them getting the, the science right or even mostly right helped uh, uh, investigators go in the right direction on this particular case. Yeah, but I I think this is such a bizarre and fascinating story going from like the aesthetics of what beer looks like in a glass mm-hmm. to to these outbreaks of of metal poisoning. Yeah, yeah, and 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 like, and again, it's clearly a case where the the individuals who did this, they were they were thinking, well, we just we want to make the beer look nicer. What can right. we add? Here's something that uh, that oh, we no. can add, and, and yeah. it's gonna it's not gonna hurt anybody. Like that was clearly far from their minds, uh-huh. and uh, and yet these were the unforeseen consequences. Yeah, but again, that's the complexity of 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 food in our modern world of, of processed food, and, uh, and and certainly beer is a is a is an artificial product. It is processed. I mean, it's stories like this that can make you – normally you don't stop to, to appreciate the bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's stories like this can, that can really make you say like, hey, wow, it's, it's actually amazing that, that modern societies have uh, come up with things like food and drug testing, organize, you know, like a food and drug administration or something that looks at products that are going out to mass markets in an organized way to say, can we be pretty certain that this is safe before releasing it on the public? Right. We, we didn't always have that. I mean, yeah, it's easy to say, you know, I don't want the government, you know, saying what I can and can't put in my body. But if the thing we're talking about is, a, say, a lead-laced uh, sucker for a child, or right. a, or 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 a cobalt-infused uh, beer, uh, you don't necessarily know what you're putting in your body. Yeah, if it I'm, hasn't been tested. I'm I'm all for Big Brother jumping in and, <laughs> and weeding out, uh, you know, poisonous products like that. But that's just me. You may have a different uh, opinion of poison. So anyway, I don't know if this is going to really help anybody out this Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, uh, don't don't put cobalt on your turkey. Right, right. Uh, yeah, don't uh, just don't use any like hard me- heavy metals to, uh, to to flavor or, or, or weigh down anything. But I, I don't know. I guess in general, you know, you're going to use some processed foods. Uh, during you know whatever kind of feast you might be having, you're going to use additives or something that has additives added to it, and so it, it is, I think, insightful to to understand the, the history of these things and uh, and the, the, the careful, careful balance that is in play between uh, uh, you know finding a nice color, enhancing a flavor, and potentially poisoning somebody. Can we end with uh, just a food coloring tip? Sure. You sort of mentioned earlier uh, when you were listing natural foods that are, are sometimes used for their, their dyeing properties or, or pigments. One that I think is a great substitute for saffron, it doesn't get the flavor there, but it also creates a wonderful yellow-orange hue is just use a little bit of turmeric. Oh, you yeah. don't have saffron at the house, but you want to make a, a, a nice yellow pot of rice, a little bit of turmeric in there goes a long way. Oh, yeah. I love I love turmeric. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and call it here for this year's Dangerous Foods. But I think I think we'll probably be be back next year with another Dangerous Foods episode. Uh, we did not exhaust the, um, <laughs> the the larder of poisons this time, uh, so uh, I think we'll be able to come back with some new angle next year. 
In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, go on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find them. That's the mothership. Uh, and you can also find the show wherever you get your podcasts, wherever it is. Just make sure you've subscribed and give us a rating and a review. That really helps us out. If you want a little uh, horror fiction, check out The Second Oil Age. That's out wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check out our other uh, nonfiction show, that being Invention. Invention is a journey through human techno history, one invention at a time. Uh, this month, there have been a number of food episodes, a two-part look at the microwave, for instance. Use a microwave every day. Do you know how it works? Well, you should listen to these episodes and, and make sure you're on top of that. Uh, let's see. What else? Oh, yeah. On uh, on the social media, there's the, uh, the the Facebook group, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. That's a good place to, to chime in and chat with other listeners. I'm sure some folks are going to chime in about Strange Brew uh, to, and, to let everyone know exactly what that film is about and to what extent it may or may not tie into our topics today. Did it have Rick Moranis in it? Yeah. Yeah, it was Rick, Rick Moranis and uh, the other guy from um, – was it was it Second City? Dave Thomas. Dave Thomas. Seth has informed Seth us it was us Dave know. Thomas. Yes, Dave Thomas, Rick Moranis, and probably some other uh, names as well. But those are the two leads. Uh, just want to emphasize again: if you haven't checked out Invention yet, check that out. If you haven't checked out the Second Oil Age, you must do it. I think you're going to love it. It's so much fun. Oh, and t-shirts. Uh, the, the the stuff to blow your mind merch store is still active, and it is my understanding that there is a new shirt in there for Thanksgiving, and there is also some manner of like there's like you know there's always Black Friday deals and Thanksgiving deals. So just be advised, this is a good time to get merchandise from that store uh, if you so desire. Totally. Totally. Buy it all. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.